biology. 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 All right, hello and welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we're continuing through Mod 7 and looking at the different ways in which diseases can be transmitted, including direct, indirect, and vector transmission. And we're also going to be looking at the transmission of a disease during an epidemic. So diseases can be transmitted in a number of different ways. And we spoke about all the different types of pathogens last time on the podcast, and uh, they can all be transferred and uh, in different ways. And there are three main ways listed in the syllabus that I just mentioned before, direct, indirect, and vector. So we'll go through those. Um, but it's important to note that there are um, ways in which the pathogens can sort of hide out in between those stages. And so I'll mention this first before we get into it, and that's the word reservoir. A reservoir is where a pathogen can remain dormant or um, they can remain uh, stable for a long period of time before infecting a host. And this is sort of outside the scope of the syllabus, but I think it's something they could technically test because without having a reservoir, you wouldn't have the ability for some of the pathogens to move um, from one individual to another. So let's start with direct contact. And direct contact is where there is some sort of physical contact between the host and the non-infected organism. And usually uh, this is passed through bodily fluids in some way. And so some examples you can think of are touching, any sexual contact, kissing, um, contact with the nasal passages, biting, uh, blood and, and, and any other bodily fluids. Uh, it can also be passed on from uh, mother to offspring in something called vertical transmission. So there are two sort of types of direct contact. You can have horizontal transmission, which is where, um, and it kind of makes sense, you know, this is where one person might pass it to another or an animal to a person, horizontal. And vertical transmission is where it goes from the parent to the offspring or from the mother to the baby. Um, so they're two different types of direct contact. But yes, anything that involves touching, uh, Kissing, things like that, um, biting. Just remember, direct contact is pretty easy to understand. It's going to be direct and it's going to be physical in some way. Now, indirect contact involves no physical touching um, where there's no direct contact. And this is where that term reservoir is important because this is where a pathogen can lay dormant for a long period of time um, on a contaminated item or object uh, in, waiting for the next host so let's go through a few examples now. Um, one being airborne transmission that you all probably understand. This comes from coughing and sneezing where droplets can travel in the air and they can sit there for a very long period of time. If you've seen any of the sort of heat maps and the uh, uh, the, the the videos on, on social media that show you where these particles sit and how long they last in the air, it's quite a long period of time and they can go quite far. Um, another way that you might know of is touching an infected surface. We've been, you know, incessantly cleaning and wiping down surfaces. And a final way would be contaminated food or water. So we spoke about salmonella last time on the podcast, and that would be a type of food that would transmit a bacterial infection, and it could last for a long period of time um, before it goes from, you know, the uh, contaminated food to the individual. 
All right. The last example of transmission mentioned in the syllabus is vector transmission. And this is where there is going to be some sort of animal or organism involved in transmitting or transporting that uh, pathogen from one place to another. So this is a form of indirect contact as well. There's no you know, direct touching from person to person, but there is going to be something in the middle carrying that uh, pathogen from one person to another. Now, some examples include mosquitoes, sandflies, ticks, fleas, and flies. They all have the ability to carry um, infectious diseases. But the best example to use here would be uh, a mosquito, because a lot of you would know that uh, malaria is carried by mosquitoes. Now, a uh, malarial parasite, uh, the plasmodium parasite, which is a protozoan, actually has a very complex life cycle, um, which involves uh, many different stages, including an asexual stage and a sexual reproduction stage. But it needs the mosquito in order to complete this loop. So when an infected individual is bitten by a mosquito, it uptakes some of the blood that has that protozoan in it. Now, within the mosquito's um, uh, stomach or wherever the, bl the blood is kept, it should be the stomach, um, that will undergo uh, another part of its life cycle in preparation to be inserted back into a new host. And then when it gets inserted back into a new host, the life cycle will continue. It will go down into the red blood cells, go to the liver cells. And yeah, the, the life cycle of malaria is super complex, but you guys should definitely check it out. I think it's a really good sort of skills question to ask to analyze the malarial life cycle. Um, but for the most part, what we're talking about today is the idea of vector transmission, this idea that an animal or organism is carrying that pathogen from one place to another. Um, so the total amount of diseases this represents is around 17%, according to the Nelson books. And another disease that is transmitted via vector would be dengue fever, which is something else mentioned in the syllabus as well. So you can see potentially a crossover there. All right, now with all that information, we can look at the transmission of a disease during an epidemic. And I think this is where some people might get a little in trouble. With COVID, it obviously started as an epidemic. So an epidemic is usually... Um, localized within a region or several countries. It hasn't spread globally, but COVID obviously has spread globally at this point, so it has become a pandemic. So I can see this being something they won't necessarily test, but if it's asking for an example of an epidemic, you need to be able to explain the epidemic part of COVID, and I think that's too complicated to do. So instead, I'm going to go through another example, which I think is much easier because the name of the epidemic, um, it's got epidemic in the name, which makes it, you know, you, you're pretty certain this is an epidemic. And this is the Western African Ebola virus epidemic. So I spoke about Ebola on the podcast a few weeks ago. There is, um, they have an amazing ability to stay within these reservoirs inside a human. It's um, quite, it's a little bit scary actually. But this outbreak in 2013 and 2016 was the most significant Ebola outbreak that we've had. And as the name suggests, it was localized within Western Africa. So it crossed several countries, including Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Nigeria, Mali. And it killed a total of 11,000 people with 28,000 people being infected. So it had a pretty high death rate as well. Nearly 50% of individuals that got the disease would die, which again is quite frightening. Because it was localized within that Western African region, it was 
determined to be an epidemic. Now, if it went from Africa to Asia and then Australia and, and, and onwards further, it might be considered a pandemic. But this particular outbreak was not. So it's the Western African Ebola virus epidemic. That's the name. You can check it out on uh, Wikipedia and then get some more information from there. So the dot point itself says investigate the transmission of a disease during an epidemic. So how was Ebola transmitted during this outbreak? And I say this outbreak because Ebola has been in Africa for a number of years, since 1976. But this one was believed to have been started by a two-year-old boy. And they, uh, scientists have deduced that there are bats that have to be involved with the spread of the virus. Now, they haven't got much evidence on this, so it's still sort of um, being debated today. But the boy lived near a, a large community of bats, and his mother and sister and grandmother all became sick with symptoms as well. But we need to talk about the way in which these things are transmitted. So with Ebola virus, it is named Ebola virus, which is a good thing to remember. It's quite easy to understand. And there are a number of ways it can be transmitted. As I said before, it is believed that there is an animal to human transmission element, as in going from fruit bats to humans, which means that it is a zoonic disease. Another way that it could be transmitted is through other wild bushmeats, such as from primates. Now, with human-to-human -human contact, it can be both direct or indirect. So with direct contact, the main way the virus is spread is through blood or bodily fluids, but it certainly can be spread by objects which contain those uh, fluids on there. Um, it's suggested that it can actually persist in seminal fluid for a very long period of time, up to 530 days. And as I said on the podcast a few weeks ago, potentially in the eyes and testicles, um, in a new case for up to maybe five years. So this is still obviously a single case, but that's what the uh, potential virus can be doing in these reservoirs, which is, again, quite scary. Now, one of the reasons this particular outbreak was made worse is from the low health standards they have in this part of Africa. Because they don't have great practices, they would engage in burials of the deceased, unfortunately, and it involved a lot of touching uh, and kissing and holding because that was the tradition. And that continued on for a long period of time before people, you know, had to be told that it can't keep going on like that. You're going to get sick. And with a 50% death rate, it would have been frightening for those individuals. And so it started obviously as... Um, you know, in small numbers as everything does, but due to the poor health practices they had and the ways in which they buried their dead, it continued to spread quite quickly. Once they had set up um, medical stops and, and, and places to take care of their sick, the virus was very good at actually, um, you know, evading every, every sort of way in which you tried to stop it. So cleaning your hands and wearing protective equipment, it still didn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't get the virus. You had to be very, very careful. Um, and that's what made it so hard to really treat and stop in certain individuals. So that idea of the, the unfortunate ways in which they bury their dead and the lack of proper cleaning and hygiene when they were treating their patients led to a number of people being infected beyond what was necessary. Now, as 
obviously it progressed. It got to a point where things had to be done. And that's where we look at travel restrictions and quarantine. So you guys already know a lot about those things now where you can't go certain places. But obviously this took a long period of time to, to put in place. And in the end, it ended up being as simple as putting in little check stops across certain places in West Africa where people would stop the temperature would be taken, they'd have to wash their hands, you know, clean their bodies um, in preparation to, to go across the border or wherever they were going. Um, but for the most part, if we're looking at the ways in which it was transmitted, it was believed that it was a bat that was the reservoir for the disease and Ebola virus has been found in bats in the wild but not necessarily the human variant. Um, this example was believed to be caused by a bat that went from a bat to a human, so that's a zoonic disease. Once it was in the human, it was that idea of direct contact, so people touching, people kissing, uh, people holding the individuals that were sick or dying, and those bodily fluids being transmitted. Indirect contact was also an issue here because it was transmitted on objects and substances for a long period of time, and it could also lay dormant in reservoirs within the human, even if you have been treated or had the condition had the, had the virus, it can still actually last for a long period of time and then potentially be transmitted later, which is maybe why it's so persistent in Africa because it has these long dormancy periods um, where it exists in these reservoirs. So quite a complex virus, uh, very hard to treat, unfortunately. There is a vaccine that is out now, um, but that probably goes into too much detail for this specific dot point. Um, but yeah, so that's really an overview of the Western African Ebola virus epidemic from 2013 to 2016. Now, the final dot point for this one is design and conduct a practical investigation relating to the microbial testing of water or food samples. So this is something that you should be doing in your classroom and really you should be picking a few different water samples and going through the entire process of correctly preparing a petri dish or an agar plate and that would involve first of all collecting three or four samples of water so at our school we have a pond we have a dam um, we have tap water and you can even use bottled water as well and really what you want to go through is the correct way to prepare and make sure that you have decontaminated all your surfaces so it might involve wiping down the tables before you do your experiment teaching the students how to prepare an inoculating loop, so running it through a Bunsen burner, um, teaching them to tilt their agar plate lid at 45 degrees before they do their swabbing, taping around the outside of the agar plate so as not to let out any bacteria, keeping your incubator set at 33 or 34 degrees so as not to grow bacteria that could be conducive in a human body, and then certainly at the very end, the correct disposal of your equipment. Now, the way they usually ask questions about this sort of stuff is how do you minimize risk? And really, I've just spoken about all the ways that you want to you know, seal your agar plate, keep it at a low temperature, that's minimizing risk. But one key one is the correct destruction of the agar plates. So what you want to use is an autoclave. And an autoclave is basically a uh, large container that will heat under immense pressure all of the agar killing anything and everything within the uh, within the autoclave. So it's a good way to destroy correctly destroy your bacteria. Even if you don't have one, if you're if you're looking for a, a good answer to give, that's certainly a way to minimize the potential spread of dangerous bacteria. 
Now, when you're analyzing your results, it is pretty hard to determine what bacteria or fungi you might be growing. So you can simply look at the amount of colonies, which is what we did at our school. Um, so you just count sort of how many different colonies there are. Or you could estimate the total amount of space that is being covered by these bacteria or the fungi. Um, and so therefore, you can turn this into an experiment where you are coming up with a hypothesis which water sample is going to have the greatest amount of bacterial growth or which one is going to cover the largest amount of the agar plate or is going to have the most di uh, the most different amount of colonies. So it's up to you uh, how you want to do a hypothesis here. Um, but it is a practical investigation and you should be measuring something at the end of it, even though it is hard to determine the type of bacteria. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode today, guys. And as always, make sure you check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au. If you want to do anything with biotechnology, they will have just about everything you need. So check them out at stemreactor.com.au. See you next time. Bye.